welcome to this special episode of Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Between February 11th and April 1st, 2022, the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute held our 2022 Congressional Briefing Series entitled Israel and Palestine, Hot Topics in Congress. This eight-part series was co-convened and co-moderated by MEI's Khaled El-Gindi and myself, Lara Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. It featured an array of Palestinian and Israeli voices weighing in on some of the most pressing and timely Israel-Palestine related issues that Congress faces today. The series was held virtually and participation was open exclusively to members of Congress and congressional staff. However, given the importance both of the issues dealt with in this series and of the expertise featured on each panel, we decided to make the full series available to the public. You can listen to the podcast here and you can find the webinars on our website www.fmep.org. Now sit back and enjoy the podcast. Good morning and welcome to our fifth session of our eight-part congressional teach-in briefing series, Israel and Palestine Hot Topics in Congress. Uh, I'm Khaled Al-Gindi, director of the Middle East Institute's program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs, and I'm very pleased to be co-hosting this series with Lara Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm opening it now and then you can start. Welcome and good morning. Welcome to the fifth session of our eight-part teach-in series, our congressional briefing series entitled Israel and Palestine, Hot Topics in Congress. I'm Khaled Al-Gindi. I'm director of the program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute. And I'm very pleased to be co-hosting this series with Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Thanks, Khaled. Today's session is we entitled it, Why All the Fuss Over Palestinian Prisoners and Martyrs? Question um, mark. To dig into what we all know is a very hot topic, uh, certainly in Washington and Congress, we have with us today another outstanding panel of experts. I'm going to run through them alphabetically. First, we have Joad Boulos, who is a renowned Palestinian human rights lawyer, political commentator, and author. In addition to being deeply involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the fight for Palestinian human rights for over 40 years, Jawad has represented many high-profile prisoners, including Marwan Barghouti and uh, Samir al-Issawi and others. Um, second, we have Samar, uh, Sahar Francis. Sahar is the general director of Ademir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, a Ramallah-based Palestinian NGO that provides legal and advocacy support to Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli and Palestinian prisons. And last, we have Shibli Talhami. Shibli is a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for Middle East Policy in the Foreign Policy Programs at Brookings. And he is the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland. You can read our panelists' full bios at the MEI and FMEP websites. Our colleagues are now putting into the chat box other details. Um, so, and watch the chat box for their Twitter handles and links to articles and resources relevant to today's discussion. And if you miss anything in the chat box, don't worry, we'll be posting all of those links along with the video um, of this podcast, or this webinar, on the webpage for this series. 
so the format for today's discussion, like all previous discussions in this series, is going to be a moderated Q&A led by Laura and me. Uh, we'll put some basic questions uh, to our panelists to get the discussion going, uh, but we very much welcome your questions from the audience as well. So feel free to submit those at any time. Um, you can do that using the Q&A function uh, and we'll keep an eye uh, on, uh, on that box uh, throughout the conversation and try to work in as many of your questions uh, as we can. Um, please note also that this uh, webinar is being recorded. Uh, and lastly, if you have any technical problems or questions, uh, please put those in the chat box and we'll try to get those sorted out as quickly as possible. Um, and so with that, let's go ahead and, and begin. Terrific. So just as some background, um, last September, we saw um, it was all over the news, the dramatic escape of six Palestinian prisoners, five of whom belonged to Islamic Jihad from the high security Gilboa prison in northern Israel. Although six of them, all, although all six were eventually recaptured by Israeli authorities, the escape shined a very bright light on the thousands of Palestinian prisoners who are now being held in Israeli jails on their status in Palestinian society and on their treatment at the hands of Israel. It also highlighted the vast chasm between how Palestinians and Israelis view the issue of Palestinian prisoners. For Palestinians, the escape became a symbol of defiance and hope for ordinary citizens and leaders. Um, for Israelis, on the other hand, the men were regarded simply as terrorists and their escape was seen as a major security failure and an embarrassment for Israel's security establishment. So with that, as just some quick context, I wanna start with Sahar. Sahar, your organization, Ademir, is probably the best known Palestinian organization working on the issue of prisoners. Can you just sort of start us off with some background on the problem, the scope of the problem? How many Palestinians are in Israeli jails? Who are they? Where do they come from? Um, with political factions, et cetera. And, and what are the problems that they face as Palestinian prisoners in terms of treatment by Israeli authorities, in terms of claims of torture? Um, I don't know if you wanna to touch on the issue of um, due process and administrative detention, you know, all of that in five minutes. Hello, and thanks uh, a lot for this opportunity. And it's my honor to share you today in this panel uh, actually, this is so many questions in five minutes to brief about, but I would start by highlighting that the imprisonment experience and the use of the military orders and the military courts and the British security regulations in order to imprison thousands, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians over decades, this is the system of control and oppression that the Israeli occupation were using against the Palestinian society as a whole for decades. So it's uh, touching every and each Palestinian house, each Palestinian family. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were imprisoned all these years. Currently, there's 4,500 Palestinian prisoners in the Israeli prisons. They are all held inside prisons inside Israel. This is by itself a violation for the international law because uh, forcible transfer is a crime. Out of them, there's 160 children in detention, 33 women, 
and around 500 administrative detainees. Administrative detention is arresting people without a charge, without a trial, and all these 500 administrative detainees are boycotting the military system because they claim it's not a justice system, it's, there's no due process, it's based on secret information where you could be indefinitely imprisoned, you will enter, you will never know when you would be released. This is amounts to psychological torture, according to the uh, uh, Committee Against Torture in the UN uh, uh, system. Uh, and these prisoners actually face lots of violations for their basic rights from the first moment of arrest. Uh, ill treatment and abuse and torture and lots of violence is used against them. In the interrogation, they face lots of psychological and physical torture that includes uh, a stressful position and shaking and others. Uh, uh, and the uh, trial in the military court is it's very uh, uh, far from being a, a fair trial procedures uh, that is implemented in the military courts with harsh sentences. And the punishments, the collective punishments that the prisoners movement face continues while awaiting uh, uh, the trial or sitting on the sentence in the Israeli prisons. There's lots of details to be discussed. Maybe later on the uh, um, discussion, we can tackle more specifically on uh, 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 all these issues, but the case of the prisoners is very important for the Palestinian society. They are very essential part of the Palestinian uh, society, playing a very uh, important role in the uh, uh, resistance movement and in the political life in the Palestinian context. Thanks, uh, Sahar. Uh, Joette, I, I want to ask you to sort of build on that as a, as a lawyer who has represented many high-profile Palestinian prisoners, <laughs> including probably the most famous Palestinian prisoner, Marwan Barghouti, uh, who is serving multiple life sentences, uh, as well as uh, Samir al-Aisawi, al um, who uh, is known for having uh, endured the longest a uh, single hunger strike of 266 days to protest his uh, the, the conditions of his detention. Um, so you've seen the Israeli system up close. Um, uh, the vast majority of Palestinian convictions are from military courts, uh, which uh, have about a 99.7% conviction rate. So what does this mean? Sahar talked a little bit about uh, due process and, and basic fairness. What does it mean? Uh, what sort of a system uh, is in place that produces such a high rate uh, of convictions? Yes, um, Sahar had uh, touched uh, the major points of uh, uh, the main aims of the military uh, courts uh, and uh, the whole system. It, uh, it starts with the very early days of uh, detention, going through the interrogations, uh, the rights of uh, an inter uh, the, the detainee uh, uh, from the very beginning, the, uh, not giving him the opportunity to see his lawyer, his uh, family or whatsoever. So when the file uh, comes to a final station, uh, namely the courts, uh, uh, it has no, uh, from the very beginning, it has no hope uh, to be handled as a fair, a fair process. 
beginning just of uh, being the main arm of the occupation uh, which handles, as Sahar said, uh, the Palestinian population. Uh, I, I think apart from the details, what is important to understand that the Israeli uh, politicians back uh, to the 60s, they have thought about this uh, uh, option and they have planned to have this system in order to uh, 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 control the population will be under the uh, Israeli occupation. It is well written in, in so many uh, sources uh, that uh, in 66, uh, the military general attorney at the time, uh, Meir Shamgar, who by the days became uh, the chief of uh, the High Court of Justice judges, um, uh, he advised his uh, army and his government that uh, to prepare a whole system of uh, uh, military courts and also he advised them to open the high court of justice to the people which will be under their uh, occupation and order and he 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 wrote why and then when the uh, war of 67 had ended just the day after this system uh, uh, was ready to work as it is working here as it is shaping the relation, and that's what is important. The Israelis aimed from the very beginning to uh, deal with the Palestinians who will fight the occupation as criminals. And uh, they are uh, uh, succeeding. They succeeded and they are succeeding to have these people as we see, or terrorists or criminals or uh, and so on and so And the Palestinians didn't even think for a while, not at the past and neither today, to reconsider their relations with this system, neither with the High Court of Justice, so-called, which never helped any Palestinian who came seeking justice from this point. So a due process we don't have, and it was not aimed to be as a, a system to deliver due process or fairness uh, to those who will act against uh, the occupation. Therefore, the details are so important in order to understand this theory which uh, uh, shaped from the very beginning the role of uh, uh, these courts. Thank you. And I mean, I, I was just chatting with Khaled behind the scenes. There's so much more to dig into this. And I hope we can dig into it in the next round. Shibli, I, I wanna come to you. Um, and look at another aspect of this. And, and I talked before about the, the prison break. Um, five of the six prisoners who broke out of prison there were from Islamic Jihad, which actually has a very small following in, in Palestinian politics. But still, the, the escape really captured the imagination of Palestinians from all walks of life, regardless of their politics, regardless of ideology or geography or socioeconomic status or anything. Um, Talk about that. Talk about why this issue of Palestinian uh, prisoners, and Sahar already touched on this, but talk about why it is central, um, in fact, both to the PA and the PLO, which have ministries um, and departments dedicated to prisoner affairs. Why does this issue resonate so strongly among Palestinians? And you are muted, Shibley. Sorry about that. Um... Um, you know, as it's been pointed out, there are nearly a million Palestinians that have been imprisoned by Israel uh, over the 
period of occupation. Remember, there were about 5 million Palestinians in, uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. So no families untouched. That includes thousands of children, by the way, over that period. Now, it's true that some of them uh, have been held um, for acts that, uh, according to international organizations and human rights organizations, would qualify as terrorists in that they were implicated in attacks against civilians for political reasons. But thousands more have not been, do not fit that, uh, and including thousands who have not been even charged and held under administration. So you can expect, you, you can, uh, it, you know, everybody is readily called a terrorist. So from the Palestinian perspective with the widespread imprisonment of touching every family, you can imagine the suspicion about the use of that term. Uh, and of course, the context in which is taking place uh, is that uh, you know there, there is uh, no um, uh, method uh, of, of civil courts uh, to address these issues. Palestinians are, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically go to, to uh, are, are prosecuted with with military courts as just as at the same time their settler neighbors uh, face civil courts who are rarely uh, convicted. Uh, certainly, soldiers are rarely con convicted. So you have this issue where the Palestinians feel defenseless, uh, both in terms of uh, the imprisonment, uh, the labeling of the prisoners, uh, as well as the pursuit of justice uh, for those who are imprisoned. But also on the other side, the frustration that the attacks against them uh, are not, you know, by settlers or by soldiers. Um, uh, those attackers do not face a, a a justice system that's accountable, and very few are are convicted uh, in, of these crimes. Now, I you know, underlying all this is something really laughable which we really have to grapple with, because I know that you're using this issue or focus on this issue because you know how timely and pervasive it is. I understand why the American mainstream and people in Congress uh, feel really kind of offended by the thought that the Palestinian Authority quote, pays people to kill Israelis. And if that were true, of course, you know, I think it'd be understandable why people would feel that way. It is, it is theoretically offensive. Except that this is, of course, an erroneous framing. It is something that is, I say laughable, of course, it's painful, but it's laughable. It's laughable because to think that the Palestinian Authority, which is there under Israel's nose, is in the, uh, under occupation, which um, has um, been called by Israeli analysts as well as Palestinians, seen as essentially a subcontractor for Israeli security, uh, and called that day in and day out is not something that is considered to be the main function of the authorities essentially to cooperate with Israel. Everybody thinks that's successful at the very same time that they're incapable of defending Palestinians. Uh, they have forces that cooperate with Israelis, but they can't defend Palestinians against settlers who are attacking Palestinians, or certainly against soldiers who are attacking on uh, inside area A where the, uh, the Palestinian Authority uh, controls that. Whatever you say, uh, about Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas and the many things that one can criticize him for, um, autocratic rule, uh, corruption, uh, uh, um, uh, mismanagement, the many things that one can say about him, but he has been opposed to the use of violence against Israelis uh, throughout his career from the beginning, even 
his disagreement with Yasser Arafat back in the second intifada, and and certainly has not been a, a, a big advocate of that. Uh, you know, and obviously a lot of, as I said, Palestinians, many of them see him as essentially a subcontractor for Israel's security. So this whole issue, therefore, is in a way created, and you could think about this for a minute, because when you look at the relationship between Israel and the U.S. and the Palestinians in the U.S., this was not an issue up until the end of the Obama administration when Trump started emerging, and this was highlighted in the right. But even the Israelis didn't raise this issue with the Obama people during the Obama years, during you know when this system was, was in place. And if you look at the trends that are happening on the ground uh, throughout the Israeli occupation, while this system was in place, there were ups and downs of uh, attacks on Israel, all of which were completely unaffected by the payment because something else was generating that because the bulk of what happens is that people who carry out attacks, they do it for political reasons. The thought that the Palestinians do it for money, separate from whether the authority wants them to do it for money, the fact that people individually will act principally because they want payment or payment to their family is frankly outrageous. I mean, it just doesn't hold water uh, to consider that if you're, if you're um, uh, someone who is going to act, you're going to know, first of all, that your family is going to face collective punishment. Because on the other side of this coin, people who are accused of terrorist attacks have their homes and their family homes demolished, meaning everybody else in their family could become homeless and, and, and live in the streets. That's the idea, that the money doesn't compensate for that, let alone the fact that they will be imprisoned and separated from their families and loved ones and, and the cost that that, that would be uh, there. So to, to think that they would somehow, that the, this payment would trump everything else and that we know about human beings, uh, it's just not, it does not hold water. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Shibli. So um, I, I want to probe you a little bit deeper on this question because you, you raise a, an important issue uh, in terms of things like the Taylor Force Act of, of 2018, which uh, specifically bars aid that directly benefits the Palestinian Authority so long as the Palestinian Authority or the PLO continue making these payments that you referred to um, to the families uh, of, of those imprisoned or killed uh, by Israel. The theory uh, behind this legislation uh, is, or the logic behind the legislation, is, is that these prisoner payments, uh, which really uh, are Palestinians see as a, as a form of uh, a sort of a welfare payment, because in many times, uh, in many instances, the uh, imprisoned person is the main breadwinner in the family. Um, but the logic behind this law is basically that um, these payments are seen as an incentive to carry out uh, attacks on Israelis, and hence it's earned the name, um, which uh, you've sort of alluded to, pay to slay. Um, you've written about this and we'll, uh, we'll uh, post that in, uh, in the chat. Um, so you've told us why you think that this sort of this reasoning is flawed. And you also mentioned the fact that this legislation really only came about in, uh, in the last few years, right? And we've seen many rounds of violence, many attempts at negotiation. 
This is a policy that's been in place, I think, since 1964. Um, what is it that you, what's behind this, the timing of this type of legislation in the context of American politics? Why did it suddenly uh, become an issue even after, you know, the second intifada, which was quite violent? Um, we didn't see uh, a push for this sort of thing. Why now? Um, well, let me first of all say one more thing about the trend, right? Because the idea, the logic that this will increase the number of people who would attack, that doesn't hold water because we, we look at the, the, this has been a fixed thing in, in uh, Palestinian society and politics. And yet the trends up and down have varied dramatically uh, independently, mostly for political reasons that have nothing to do with the payment method. So uh, I think, you know, we have to keep that in mind that this uh, uh, payment issue is, you know, as incentive, it just doesn't, you know, when you look at the data, it just doesn't hold water. But why did it happen on the Trump years? Obviously, you had um, the Israeli right um, um, uh, working with the American right under Trump uh, to push this kind of legislation uh, at a time uh, when um, there was a move to uh, undermine uh, the perception of the Palestinian Authority, in my opinion. Um, uh, not that the, uh, Israel had been ever a fan of the Palestinian Authority, even though it benefited from its security cooperation. But there was a sense initially when uh, Trump came to office that Trump uh, uh, had a, a, you know, a working relationship with Mahmoud Abbas when he first came to visit in the White House. And we do know there was a campaign uh, to undermine uh, Trump's personal uh, view of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, not only Mahmoud Abbas, but the Palestinian Authority. The most uh, striking example of this uh, in Bob Woodward's book um, is, um, this uh, uh, video that was shown to Trump when he was visiting Israel um, and uh, uh, had was about to meet with Mahmoud Abbas in Bethlehem on that eve on the eve of that uh, he was shown a doctor video of what the Palestinians do and what they say, including on on payment to prisoners. Apparently, uh, we haven't seen the video, but we've gotten a lot of reports on what it is. Even people who are close. Aides to Arafat, like McMaster, uh, National Security Advisor, and others were prevented from joining that particular meeting uh, in which the, the president was shown. So there was a, 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 a clearly a very deliberate attempt uh, to uh, undermine uh, the, the, uh, uh, the view of the authority at a time when clearly the Trump team was moving toward something that is not exactly a two-state solution. Uh, they may call it that, but obviously everybody understood that there would be Israeli annexation of part of the West Bank, and in any case, whatever Palestinian entity would emerge, as happened in the Trump peace plan, would not be anything uh, at all close, uh, close to a state. So I think there was a campaign. I think this was part of a campaign. And let me just say one more thing, which is if the Palestinian Authority were to change that payment structure, um, uh, I think that uh, there will be another issue invented uh, to undermine the relationship. Uh, I don't think this is the reason why the, 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 closest, the, the most vocal opponents of the authority are really attacking the authority. It is another uh, you know, kind of a, a issue. 
uh, a wedge issue uh, and another would be created. Now I say that with the understanding that the Palestinian Authority came particularly as Obama was, as Biden was elected, uh, they came into office thinking maybe they can restructure the, the prisoner payment. Uh, for example, uh, an issue that I think would be open to conversation is the structure of the payments. Is it really giving incentives uh, to people who have committed the most serious crimes because they're serving longer uh, in prison? That is something that they were that that the administration raised with them. They were open to restructuring it. But then when they went to the administration and said, uh, "What can you uh, offer us in order to be able to sell this to our people?" Uh, and they have presented some issues to put on the table that were uh, within what Biden had promised even in the campaign, uh, uh, the, the administration was not prepared to pay a price of any kind because they were not prepared to take any step that alienated Israel and the Israeli government at this time because they feel this Israeli government is preferable to the Netanyahu government that they don't wanna rock the boat. So. Um, even that, I think, seemed to be out of the question in the short term. Thanks, Shibley. And, and I'll just add, it's not just hypothetical what you're saying. When, when, when Biden came in and there was discussion of restructuring the, the payments, we immediately started to see pressure from the same folks who had pressured on the so-called pay to slay, essentially calling into question any new arrangement, call, I mean, already attacking it before it even happened. So it's, it's not just hypothetical that the, that would not be an easy sell. Um, politically. Sahar, I want to I want to come back to you. Um, so I want to go back against the escape because that really drew people's attention to, to the issue of, of prisoners. So following the escape and then the recapture of the prisoners last fall, Israeli authorities took a number of retaliatory steps against prisoners. And this included transferring prisoners to other prisons, banning family visits for prisoners, and even arresting relatives of escapees, maybe it's used as leverage, I don't know, but that sort of collective punishment basket. Another practice, speaking of collective punishment that Israel routinely uses, and you mentioned this earlier, is the demolition of the homes of families of prisoners, which again is called collective punishment. So talk about these measures, these kinds of measures, how prevalent are they? And, and you talked earlier about this idea that there's deterrence or not deterrence, talk about and this relates to what Shibley is saying. I mean, the idea, the Israeli argument is that these, these, the use of, um, of prison terms of collective punishment is all about security. It's all about deterrence. Um, and, and therefore, whatever they do is gonna be acceptable. Can you talk about that? And you are muted. So before uh, answering your questions, I would like to, uh, go back a bit for this issue of the uh, salaries because I think there's much misunderstanding and manipulation on the issue of the prisoners and the uh, money that the PA, uh, and as you said, Khaled, it started with the PLO in the 60s. Why now? So first, I would say that it all came after the war in terror that was initiated by the US with the support of the Israelis after September 11th. And it's related to all the attack on the organizations, the civil society organizations, whether in the United States, in other places in the world, because they were claiming that this is the grassroots for the terrorism. 
the families, the, the network of the terrorists, like a terrorist as an individual have a network. The network includes the family, the organizations, the political parties, and so on. And the pressure on the PA started not just with the Americans, the Europeans forced the PA to dismantle the Palestinian Ministry of Prisoners much before the pressure of the uh, Europeans came. And we should not forget why the PLO started paying and supporting the prisoners and their families, because Israel is not taking responsibility as an occupying power about the daily life of these prisoners. The families of the prisoners buys the clothes, the food, the needs, the even the medical uh, 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 needs inside the prison, the Red Cross is stopping to afford it and it's funded by the families. Israel is paying zero on as an expense for these uh, prisoners, the thousands of prisoners. That is why the, the PA actually is supposed to support these families and these prisoners, not to talk about inside Israel, do anyone, anyone request that the state punish the families of the Israeli uh, uh, prisoners that is convicted for security crimes? Of course, no, because they are not dealt in the same way. So this is, brings me to the whole uh, uh, treatment with the Palestinian prisoners from one side. Israel is trying to convince the whole world that all these hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were involved in militant attacks that can justify calling them terrorists. I would tell you that from our work with our uh, uh, partner organizations on the Palestinian context, like Defense the Children, like uh, the Prisoners Club, like the High Commission for Prisoners, we're reporting every year thousands of students, of political activists, of children, of uh, political leaders, of civil society activists, of human rights defenders that they are arrested because of their political activism. Not all of the uh, 4,500 Palestinian prisoners sitting now in the Israeli prisons are convicted with like uh, serious uh, crimes that caused a death or injury for any Israeli that could be considered as a terrorism under the international law. Definitely not. So, and still, Israel is classifying all these prisoners as security prisoners when it comes for their basic rights inside the prison in order to justify in a legal way solitary confinement as a collective punishment and individual punishment that can last for 10 years. Some Palestinian prisoners were held more than 10 years in total solitary confinement where they were not able to visit their families. Collective uh, uh, punishments against the family members that they are banned. All the family members from the Gaza Strip for more than three years now, they are not able to visit their beloved in the Israeli prisons. The health conditions are so terrible. In the last two years, more than five prisoners died out of health neglect in the Israeli prison. The administrative detention policy, the torture use that is very intense and very severe physical torture. Samir Arbid was about to be killed in 2019 out of severe torture that he faced in the uh, Russian compound for two days. After two days of torture, he was hospitalized with 11 reps broken and kidney failure, and he almost died in the Hadassah hospital. 
the the uh, collective punishments and and the abuse and the uh, oppression against the Palestinian prisoners are taking place on daily basis. Imagine that in the COVID in the last two years, all these prisoners were under quarantine, were banned family visits, where they don't have the basic right of having phone call. There's no public phone calls in the. Uh, Palestinian security sections uh, uh, for the Palestinian prisoners. So they were totally, and we were obliged to go to the high court to start to demand, and it was afforded for the children and the women. So it's not like Israel is presenting that these prisoners are really uh, uh, treated, and they, they, of course, talk about the uh, privileged life in the Israeli prison as if they're sitting in five-star hotels. But it's not the reality, of course. And I would invite people to review all the reports that is published very uh, uh, almost monthly by the Palestinian uh, uh, organizations dealing with the political prisoners to get the reality about the daily conditions of these prisoners. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Sahar. Jawad, I want to ask you um, about these uh, what what Palestinians overwhelmingly see as political prisoners. There is, an, I think, an assumption on the part of particularly people here in the United States that if someone is in an Israeli prison, they, they A, must have done something wrong, something egregious, um, uh, in particular, like uh, violent attacks or, or terrorism. Uh, and there's also an assumption that they were afforded some kind of uh, due process. We've already heard that, that that's not really uh, the case. But I wonder if you could uh, sort of um, flesh that out for us a little bit more in terms of what a what it means to be tried and convicted in an Israeli military system, um, how it differs from a from a civilian system, um, and and uh, and also if you want to touch on um, some of the, the the issues that Sahar mentioned as well. Yes, uh, talking about. Uh, Talking about uh, military uh, military justice or, or the military system is just uh, like uh, maybe once I have read is uh, military justice is like uh, military music, uh, so it's uh, it can't be there. It's it's impossible. Uh, as I've said before, uh, the real aim of this system is just to. of being a popular. It, it takes me one delegation from America or Europa uh, in, in my capacities as a... Uh, Jawad, we're having problems with your sound. And my and your institution. Am I there? Yeah, Jawad, we're, we're having some trouble hearing you. Um, it's cutting. It's cutting out. Uh, I, I wonder if, if you might momentarily uh, turn off your video just while you're answering the question, see if that makes it better. Can I talk now? Yes, please. Is it better? Okay, so uh, if I can relate to what Shibli uh, just told us about the payments, I can, I, I can remember now so many delegations trying to convince me 
keep the payments, but under another title, welfare payments or whatsoever. And it's not uh, coincidentally, it is because I see the demand of stopping paying uh, Palestinians, prisoners, as a part of the whole uh, 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 um, uh, strategy uh, which were taking uh, and still uh, are, are, are taking place against the uh, PLO. Uh, there is a real effort successfully for some uh, limits uh, to undermine the, uh, 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 what means the PLO as, a, as, as, as an organization struggling for the liberation uh, of the Palestinians from the occupation. And uh, when, and we can see the, the, uh, the deterioration in the, in the position of the PLO, even amongst the Palestinians themselves by the years. And this is a political process we can talk about later, but as a part of it, as a part of it, which symbolizes more than any other element in Palestine. We as living in Palestine, we know that the prisoners movement is a real example, is a real proof that no matter what the occupiers will do in order to hide the occupation, the result of the occupation, prisoners are there in order to remind us and remind the people that this is an occupation, we are struggling against it, and therefore we are here. No, nothing will hide us. And here it comes the demand of stop paying them as strugglers for freedom, pay them as uh, a handicap, as disabled, as whatsoever, as needy people, but not as strugglers. So this is a political issue. It's not the money. It was the money and what the status of the, uh, the prisoner uh, symbolizes in the whole story of occupier and being occupied. So coming back to military justice, as I've said, I've been working for 40 years. And I never, I never, I never felt as I, as, as a lawyer who is really can help his uh, client uh, um, legally wise. We are there for three reasons. I described them more than once. First, we are witnesses of the Israeli mistreatment of the detainees. The first woman who had written this in 73 is Felicia Langer who had described that an occupier is an occupier, no matter if he is an Israeli of a Turkish or whatsoever. So an occupier cannot work but as an occupier against detainees who are struggling against him. So we lawyers as the first instrument which we can see and deliver to you the world, what we are seeing. Secondly, we are the only a side which can see these detainees after so many days of disconnection. So the first moment for a lawyer like me or Sahar or who else, see that the, the detainee is just like rescuing a man from the darkness. So this is a very important role which we are playing. And in the third, in the third uh, 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 level, we come as lawyers, but not really as lawyers, maybe more as tax dealers, which we can go for the bondage and take out the, uh, uh, the, the, our, our files with some kind of deals. As you said, more than 99%, almost 
of convictions, most of them are out of deals between lawyers and the military prosecutor. So my role is described not as a real lawyer. When an American citizen hears that I'm a lawyer defending Palestinians, it's really misleading. It's really not the truth. I'm there in order to try to help the, 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 the detainee to get the less as I can get out of the, of the military uh, uh, prosecution. And therefore it's a kind of policy. Uh, not all those who are in the prisons have committed crimes as you have said. Um, we have almost 540 detainees detained for life imprisonment. Most of them are there more than 20 years or whatsoever. So if we can imagine that those who are imprisoned for life imprisonment, it is because of being uh, convicted of uh, any kind of crime, let us assume that it's right. But we still have 4,000 who are not there for life imprisonment. More than half of them, they are convicted of disturbing orders. Disturbing orders is throwing stones, is demonstrating, is writing in your Facebook. Recently, we have uh, the, the new mode of, of, uh, of, uh, of convictions, uh, inciting inciters by the, 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 the Facebook. Tens of Palestinians were convicted for uh, some periods of until two years and three years just because they have written statuses in their in their Facebook. So uh, these are criminals. They are terrorists also by definition in in the in the in the eyes of the world. It's not. Uh, we have um, those who had thrown stones or participated or etc. 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 So what I'm saying is, military courts are there in order to finalize. I'm still saying that in order to get people understand that the role of these, uh, uh, and I'm saying this after 40 years working with or against these uh, courts, still I'm there, still I'm there. So I can see this frankly, uh, that no matter who are you or what you are, how famous as a lawyer you are, you cannot get more what the, margins of these courts can give you as to finalize their work and to condemn these Palestinians as terrorists, not more. So I wanna, we're gonna come to Sahar um, in a minute because I want, we, we want her to talk about the, uh, the addition, some, some of the issues you brought up in particular the plea bargains, but I wanna talk to you a little bit more. I mean, what, what you're essentially pointing to here is something that I think is not well understood when people talk about uh, Palestinians and jails and the justice system. And it, it in some ways is this distinction between rule of law, which Israel has inside the green line and rule by law, which exists in the West Bank where virtually anything is or can be made illegal for Palestinians to do under Israeli, um, uh, under the military system with the emergency orders and the old British orders and Jordanian orders, all these things still in effect. Um, Palestinians, you know, virtually anything, whether it's meeting with more than a few people or, or protesting or now on Facebook. Um, looking at what happens once people have been arrested, aside from, from talking about the plea bargains, which we're gonna get to, what what can Palestinians do? What recourse do they have 
aside from starving themselves at the point where Israel maybe will let them go to the hospital or maybe will agree to let them, you know, eat and then finish out their sentence and then let them go. But then it seems they rearrest them after they let them go after they starve themselves. I mean, we, we had a recent case of Hisham Abu Hawash, a 40 year old father of five. And he basically, he was held um, under administrative detention repeatedly and finally released after hunger striking for 141 days on the brink of death. So can, can you talk about this? What is what recourse do Palestinians have once they have been brought into this justice system, this not this not justice justice system? Is it a question for me? Uh, yeah. Yes, Joa, that's for you. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, uh, hunger strike is one of the major uh, instruments which Palestinians used uh, uh, maybe in the 10 years more than ever. And uh, this happens more in the administrative detention area where people have nothing to do but to wait for the mercy of, uh, of the occupier in order, to, in order to know at least why I'm here, how can I defend or clean myself, and when it will finish. Three major human uh, 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 questions, uh, they cannot have any answer of it. So the only way to protest against uh, uh, this uh, situation is to strike. Some say that they are striking to die or to death. It's not true. They are striking because they want their life, lives. They want their families. They want to, or, or to tell me why I'm here and give me the opportunity, even if it's not enough fair or a due process, but at least to give me the opportunity to stand in front of a military judge and to say what you are in, 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 in saying against me is, is not true. The only reason to attract, first of all, to protest, and this is very legal. Uh, other nations had uh, used that, uh, not only in Ireland and not only in, uh, everywhere. Uh, they used that before and with the Palestinians. Uh, so they want to protest, they want to attract the attention of the people, the system, the judges, and thoroughly I can say that all judges in Israel didn't give uh, any care to the fact that somebody is striking. The High Court of Justice uh, had written repeatedly in tens of the cases which I defended since Khadr Adnan before 10 or 12 years, until the last one I defended Hisham Abahawa just before two months, the judges in the high court said the fact that a prisoner is, is under hunger strike uh, uh, not to release because the only reason which we can look through is the what so called the uh, secret uh, uh, the sealed uh, file. So this is, as I've said, a legal instrument to be used by those who had nothing but to use this. Courts are not now. It's just from the beginning of this year, all administrative detainees, which is about five hundred. Uh, had uh, uh, boycotted the, all the system, the legal system, military and the high court. So uh, now we've been there for two months and more. Nobody out of the 500 are willing 
to appear in front of any kind of judge or any kind of system. They, they are there waiting for a just administrative de a de decision to know how and when they will be released. And this is another, another way of protesting, not uh, individual uh, strikers, but it's a collective uh, 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 decision taken by those and uh, all detainees had supported this decision. I think this is a successful one, very dangerous to those who had suffered. And but I'm there to help. And you, as you have said, sometimes it went uh, uh, in the right way. Sometimes. Thanks, Joad. Uh, Shibli, I'd like to come back to you. Uh, you I mentioned. Uh, Shibli, you mentioned this two-tiered system of justice whereby Palestinians are tried overwhelmingly in military courts, um, whereas Israelis, in some cases living literally uh, next door, um, are tried in, in civilian courts. Um, this is one of the factors that have led prominent human rights groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch to conclude that Israel is practicing a form of apartheid. Um, how significant do you think these designations are in political terms. We think the entire political class in Washington, I think, has rejected um, those findings by these uh, human rights groups, even as they embrace them in other contexts. Um, and, and do you see them as having any real uh, impact on the, on the policy discussion or on, on US policy in general? Um, yes, I think I think they do have an impact, even if they're rejected uh, outright because of the political sentiment. Uh, we have, for example, I'll give you one example where they've certainly affected the scholar's perception. Uh, in this uh, Middle East scholar barometer that I run with with Mark Lynch, um, we had done a poll uh, just uh, uh, last year, a few months before the Human Rights Watch report, uh, where. 59% uh, of uh, scholars uh, said what now exists is a one-state reality akin to apartheid. Uh, within just a few weeks, uh, within six months of that, we ran another poll uh, right after the Human Rights Watch report and after the Gaza uh, war in May. Um, and we found that that number went up to 65%. Uh, so just six percentage points change uh, and I think, and we have argued in our on, in our article that it was partly uh, because of the human rights, you know, human rights report. So they do have an impact because these organizations are not just dealing with Israel Palestine. These organizations have reputation on other issues, and uh, much of the mainstream, uh, certainly the liberal mainstream, uh, uh, accept their findings on other issues. So when it comes to this one, it creates at a minimum a sense of dissonance. I do want to say one thing, though, um, that's really important, which is, you know, I think when you look at um, the uh, casualties in, in, in the occupation, uh, there's no question that both Israelis and Palestinians have suffered. I mean, we have to acknowledge there have been hundreds of Israeli civilians who were killed, uh, especially during the Second Intifada. Still, when if you look at the overall number, um, it's estimated about 87% of those killed uh, have been Palestinians. Uh, and um, just since 2008, uh, it's, it's been estimated there have been over 100,000 Palestinians wounded. We, we focus on these kind of casualties, but we don't also uh, focus on the, the things that are invisible that come out with 
uh, the, what Palestinians have to put up with daily under occupation. And I say that because I think, uh, think about this in terms of how this issue has distorted the debate. The fact that is this issue of all issues, the focus of congressional attention, American policy toward Israel-Palestine. Uh, and we are dealing with it because of that as well. At a time when Russia has just invaded Ukraine and we're all focused on, you know, how this is a violation, blatant violation of international law, uh, undermining uh, and, and, and undermining the human rights of, of Ukrainians. Uh, and, and obviously it's reminding people uh, that the West Bank and Gaza have been under occupation 54 years, and that the US has invoked veto power over 40 times uh, to shield Israel from the consequences, uh, international consequences on this issue. Uh, so the occupation itself is at the core. This, is, this issue of prisoners' payments, whatever one thinks of it, is a mere symptom, one way or the other. It's not a central issue in the big picture, and yet we're focused on it instead of using the moment to focus on the consequences of occupation, the big picture, and what drives it. So in that sense, those people who push this issue have succeeded. They have succeeded because this is obviously become a central part of the American discourse at the moment, at a time when uh, the attention should be focused on the core causes, not on the symptoms. Thank you. And, and I would say just for our program that this is one of eight sessions and the other sessions focus on all the other things too. So we're not focusing only on this. Um, Sahar, I want to come back to you. And I mentioned, I want you to talk about plea bargains. I want you to talk about um, a concept which I have really been learning a lot about recently, which is the idea of effectively coerced plea bargains in the Israeli system. This really has come, I think, to the attention of a lot of us or come into focus for a lot of us. Um, with the, the increasing targeting by the Israeli authorities of NGOs, of human rights defenders, of humanitarian organizations on the ground. Um, back in October, Israel took the extraordinary step of designating six prominent Palestinian NGOs, human rights defenders, and humanitarian groups as terrorist organizations. And that included your organization, which defends the rights of Palestinian prisoners. Can you talk about this targeting, not just the designation, but even, even more broadly the targeting, the cases that have already been going on, in fact, which in some cases, to some extent, it's the previous targeting of NGOs that laid the groundwork for this targeting, and, and this, this very tough issue that faces Palestinians who are arrested by Israel in a system that does not afford them real due process and a system that is effectively ruled by law and the position that it puts them into when it comes to coerced plea bargains and the implications of those plea bargains for other Palestinians coming into the system. Definitely, because as my colleague Jawad said, uh, uh, there's nothing in front of this court but to choose to go uh, to a plea bargain because the whole system is coercive. When you arrest someone from his home under severe violence, you start beating him and strip search him and force him uh, to give confession. And then you take him for interrogation, you interrogate him under severe torture and you collect the evidences under such a severe torture. And then the military court would accept these evidences as the main base for the criminal case how you can expect justice from this 
system, there's lots to be discussed about the violations for the criminal procedures of a fair trial and why we reached this conclusion that the whole system is a coercive system and it can never be considered a justice system. So this is brings me to the easy, uh, uh, how easy is the system uh, 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 declaring about human rights organizations or human rights defenders as terrorist groups. And it didn't start with the sex organizations. There's tens of other uh, uh, civil society organizations about human rights and the humanitarian organizations that they were declared illegal much before the establishment of the 2016 anti-terror law inside Israel that we were designated according to it. I'll come to it in a bit, but Israel were using the British security regulations in order and the military orders in order to declare about tens of Palestinian NGOs, whether in East Jerusalem, in order to uh, kick out all Palestinian organizations that used to work and to exist, including the Orient House, <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, the main uh, uh, office of the PLO that was acting in East Jerusalem at that time. And it continued and then they used, and this is why I highlighted the war against terror that was initiated by the United States because Israel used this uh, 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 policy and strategies in order to attack Hamas organizations under the claim that they are associated with terrorism. And this is how they uh, caused the US to declare about organizations in the United States as the Holy Land Fund and, and to trace people and to uh, convict them. And uh, uh, we can mention the case of Muhammad al-Halabi, the World Vision, uh, organization that he's still awaiting trial in the Israeli civil system, not in the military court system for five years. And if he was about to choose the plea bargain, he would be released two years ago because they were offering him to plead guilty and to be uh, sentenced for three years imprisonment just to admit that he was really getting money and transferring money from the organization to the Hamas. And it's repeated in our case, much before the designation of the six organizations, they declared about two organizations, the Health Work Committee and the Agriculture Work Committee Union as illegal entities. They arrested five employees from the Health Work Committee, including Shada Audi, the director, a 62 years old woman that she's awaiting trial under this uh, 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 charges of uh, uh, aiding terrorism and working in illegal organization. Like it's very obvious the way how they are targeting human rights defenders and individuals. For example, currently we are dealing with the case of a Palestinian lawyer, 80 years old, Bashir al-Khairi was arrested and charged with the same charges, very similar charges to the uh, case of Khitam Saakin, the director of the, WOM, the Women Union uh, uh, Committee, also was designated with us, that she's, convict, she's already convicted. Bashir was released on uh, bail from the first instant court. The military prosecution appealed. The appeal court released him on bail. So this is another example how it's very difficult 
to avoid the imprisonment under this system. So the military prosecutor, when they lost the appeal, they issued him a six months administrative detention. The man is still sitting in detention because he was able to be released on condition till the end of the trial, he was sent for administrative detention. So what you will do if not going for a plea bargain, a coercive plea bargain in order to guarantee your freedom instead of being indefinitely imprisoned under this system. Uh, thanks, Sahara. I'd like to stay with you for a moment and, and turn to the political dimension uh, of, of this issue. Um, you've already described the prisoners as, as political prisoners, um, but it, all Palestinian factions um, talk about really the sanctity of the, of the prisoner issue. Um, but to what extent are, is it an actual priority for groups like Hamas and Fatah? And, and is there anything that they can actually do as, as political organizations. And, and I would just point out, it's one interesting statistic from, uh, from your organization, Al-Damir, uh, of the total prisoner population, 45% are from Fatah, uh, and 30% belong to Hamas, which is interesting given that Fatah is supposed to be the party that, uh, that is uh, involved in negotiations and, and not resistance. But I wonder if you could, Talk about what these factions are doing in uh, uh, with regard to the prisoner issue. First, it is a reality that the Fatah uh, prisoners are still the majority inside the Israeli prisons. And this is just disclosed the whole purpose of the use of the imprisonment as a system of control, because it's not about like it's not about the resistance, it's not about the militant activities, as I said, and as my colleague uh, Jawad confirmed, if you want to take the 500 prisoners that they are convicted for life sentences and assume that they are convicted because of militant activity, what about the, the other 4,000 that currently, and imagine how many thousands of prisoners were imprisoned all these years just for their political activism in the, uh, you know that all Palestinian political parties in the universities, all studential movements are declared illegal. So thousands of Palestinian uh, uh, students are imprisoned because of their studential activities inside the universities. So uh, uh, as I said, the issue of the prisoners is very important in the Palestinian context, although we have lots of criticism as human rights organizations on how the way the political, uh, uh, especially Hamas and Fatah, dealt with the issue of the prisoners through the negotiations. Because when the, PL, uh, when the PA was negotiating about the release of the prisoners, unfortunately, they didn't took this case if I want to compare it in how the discussion, the peace negotiations in Ireland and in uh, uh, South Africa example, where taking the issue of the prisoners and insisting that the prison, the political prisoners should be released before any peace agreement, we failed in the PA negotiations because Israel succeeded in imposing their conditions on these releases. And you remember every time until today, there's more than 25 prisoners from before Oslo agreement that they are still held inside the Israeli prisons. And uh, 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 unfortunately, uh, Hamas did 
also mistakes when they negotiated in the, uh, in the Shalit exchange uh, deal. And uh, uh, they um, didn't took in consideration some developments in the military orders, for example, that enabled the Israelis, unfortunately, to rearrest more than 64 uh, uh, prisoners that they were released on the exchange deal. And now they are back to the life sentences or the long-term sentences because this amendment in the uh, 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 military orders and Hamas were never insisting in the deal to put their own conditions on such releases. So I think on the political level, the issue of the prisoners, how we can guarantee to release all these thousands of political prisoners in any peace or uh, 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 negotiations in the future still to be discussed more in depth in order to incorporate the international humanitarian law standards and human rights standards and other examples, as I said, from other experiences in the, in the world. Thank you, Sahar. Jawar, I wanna come back to you. Um, in 2006, a group of prominent Palestinian prisoners led by Marwan Barghouti released a document called the National Conciliation Document of the Prisoners, which called for an end to the division between Hamas and Fatah. This is a full year before there was actually the full civil war. And it presented a, a program for reviving the Palestinian national movement. It was signed by members of all major political factions, including Fatah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, PFLP, DFLP. So here we are now, more than 15 years later, the divisions are deeper than ever. Um, and one of prisoners remain one of the rare areas of political consensus across the partisan and ideological spectrum. So can you talk about how the issue of political prisoners might actually be able to help drive Palestinian unity or be an incubator for new political thinking and initiatives? It depends on them in the end. Uh, 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 it takes me back to what uh, the prison, prisoners movement meant uh, during the Palestinian history. And uh, since uh, 67, uh, the early prisoners were uh, uh, aware that if they will uh, keep themselves individually working and resisting inside the prisons, Israel will uh, totally succeed in, in um, I think, demolishing all what they are working for and therefore they have created this entity which we call al-harak al-asir al-falastiniya the the palestinian prisoners movement which is uh, uh, you know it's it's like a, it's like a, a symbol a sacred symbol uh, inside the palestinian society through uh, decades um this uh, i think we lost that in 2006 uh, uh, by the division of Hamas and the big split of uh, Gaza, uh, uh, vice versa, West Bank, Hamas, Fatih, and etc. Uh, in 2007, uh, where this division uh, still uh, still uh, not so deep, uh, uh, they tried inside Marwan and all the other leaders. I I still remember the negotiation between all the factions inside the prisons. I I was I was there. And they succeeded to produce this very important document. And um, um, all of the leaders outside the prisons had claimed that they are accepting the main principles stated there. But sorely, they it was only statements, 
nobody really followed really to implement the uh, 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 principles which were stated by the Palestinians. And at that moment, I think the prisoners accepted in their inner behavior. Uh, for years, they have been always above all the disputes amongst Palestinians. And they were the maestros of the national rhythm of the Palestinian state is, uh, 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 streets. No matter how you are debating outside, we will in the end uh, uh, give you the uh, last note of the national uh, struggle. And it was accepted by everybody. And after 2007, they accepted or they tend to be the mirrors of their societies, not those who are dictating the rules, but they are absorbing the fragments of the outside. And they are acting as factions inside, not as one entity. In some, in some stages like today, for instance, they might come up with some consensus of, of, of something, daily uh, struggle points inside the prisons. But in general, this, uh, how do you call this breakdown, this uh, uh, division is so deep inside the imprisonment, uh, the prisoners movement, just even more than the outside. It's very sorrowful. Have they any opportunity to come back? Yes, they are trying nowadays. They just have released recently uh, that they are going for a, a, a hunger strike on the 25th of March uh, because of so many uh, issues uh, are not settled after the escape of the six people from Gilboa, the, uh, the, the imprisonment, uh, uh, the, the, the Israeli uh, 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 prison association or authority have taken uh, so many oppressive uh, actions against uh, the prisoners. They are trying to uh, to stand against these oppressions and they have uh, succeeded in, in solving so many problems as I've uh, learned today. And maybe this uh, step which we, which we are looking for 25th of March maybe will not take place, but at least this was a brilliant moment where all detainees from all uh, sections tried to uh, 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 write uh, one document which were all signed as in 2007. Can they do it in the, I, I doubt that they will, uh, will succeed in the future because the situation outside is I think stronger than the collective interests which were uh, accepted by all the prisoners through the decades, at least which I witnessed for 40 years. Thanks, Soad. Shiblia, I want to come back to you, and, and you'll have the last word here um, as you wrap up the panel. Um, give us your thoughts on, on the role that the prisoners play or could play in the, in the political realm, um, not just in terms of, in, in, you know, partly in, in terms of internal Palestinian politics, but also in terms of uh, international diplomacy. Can the prisoner issue um, be a catalyst, for example, for reviving a diplomatic process I um, mean, not too long ago that uh, Secretary Kerry brokered uh, a deal of a you know, major prisoner release as part of a package to go back to uh, a negotiation. Um, how do you see things uh, on, on the international uh, diplomatic arena? 
Uh, as I said earlier, I do think this is this issue is merely a symptom, not a cause. Uh, and that means it's not the path to address the core issues. It can only be distracting. And I say that with a couple of observations that need to be put on the table. One, the thought that these payments are uh, themselves a cause of violence that takes place. As I said earlier, the documentation doesn't show it at all because these, this has been a constant and you've had ups and downs, but also in the calculus, sure, uh, a, a would-be attacker uh, is going to have to take costs and benefits into, into account for sure. Uh, but, you know, even aside from the collective punishment on the Israeli side, demolition of family homes, which has huge costs, which has not stopped Palestinians uh, from doing it, um, there's also not, it's not clear that withholding payments uh, from families uh, of uh, people who've been killed or imprisoned isn't going to radicalize them more and draw more people into, into violence. We don't really know that for sure, but this is not, there is no connection per se in the, uh, look, there is no benign occupation. Occupation is violent by definition. That's true for every occupation, not just Israeli occupation. And under occupation, you witness people who are occupied, uh, who become violent in various ways. Um, it is a function of the existing conditions and extended occupation, you have more than a half a century. Uh, what do you expect from people? Uh, sure, one hopes that people do not attack civilians. One hopes that uh, one will abide by certain norms and rules, uh, but that's not what we witness across the board in the international community. Uh, and I think what we need to do first and foremost is keep our eyes on the ball, which is there's got to be a way to end the occupation in a just way. This issue of prisoners is a mere symptom and it is being used by opponents of peace. It is being used by people who don't want to see an end to occupation, by people who do not want to see a Palestinian state emerge as a wedge issue. Now, of course, there are a lot of people who use it uh, innocently uh, and not including among uh, people who want to see peace, particularly in the US, because they get this, when you frame it as slay, uh, pay to slay, and you buy into that kind of paradigm and you overlook all of the things that we have said, I understand how people uh, can't let go of it, but I think they should. So I think that's a really great place to end this. Um, on behalf of the Middle East Institute and the Foundation for Middle East Peace, I wanna thank all of our panelists, Jawad, Sahar, and Shibli, and thanks thank to all who joined us for this webinar, especially those who uh, submitted questions. We used all the questions that we could. We hope you enjoyed today's session. We hope to see you again next Friday at the same time for the next session in our teaching, which will look at the ever hot topic of the BDS movement and what it means that the US is legislating against it. And we will have for that panel, Brian House from the ACLU, Omar Barghouti, who is the founder of the Palestinian Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions campaign, and Olivia Cuthby-Smith, who is the BDS North America coordinator. So it promises to be a really excellent discussion again. With that, thank you all very much. <laughs>